Welcome. Really happy to have you all here. Really excited. Today's is a great way to kick off what Roundtable's doing. We have got an amazing panel of doctors, scientists here today. They're brilliant human beings who are doctors, scientists trying to deal with a very difficult pandemic and want to have a voice and a conversation that we've lost in this country right now. I'm going to just give a really quick introduction for you guys, just so you get a sense of who they are. This is Dr. Robert Malone. He's arguably one of the key architects of mRNA. He didn't create the vaccine, lots of people did that, but without Dr. Malone, we wouldn't have mRNA vaccines. Ryan Cole is board certified at the Mayo Clinic. He has diagnosed 300 plus thousand patients. Some of you may have read, heard Pierre Corey. He gets a lot of attention because he goes on Joe Rogan and places like that. But Pierre Corey is one of the leaders in intensive care. Med students across the world, thousands of them, are studying and using his textbook. Dr. Littell is a family practice doctor. Dr. Heather Gessling, she's the chief of staff of her local hospital and has been working with kids, families around COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. Dr. Mark McDonald is a psychiatrist. He's like that hard truth in the room you're gonna have to listen to. And Dr. Tyson arguably has treated more COVID patients than anyone in the world. He has seen 6,000 plus patients in his clinic. Dr. Urso is an ophthalmologist, and while he's a eye surgeon and has one of the biggest clinics in the country, perhaps in the world, he has spent the last year and a half deep in COVID. Let me start with you, Dr. Urso. Um, basically, the world is looking at Delta. We're seeing Delta, right? We are seeing a spread of Delta. Right now, you go anywhere, people are like, Delta, Delta, Delta. CDC officials said, we're all gonna get Delta. Should we be scared? Is Delta upon us? Are we in a permanent pandemic right now? Yeah, great question, Rob. Uh, I think it's like second song, same song, second verse. We're gonna keep seeing variants, it's normal. I don't, I don't expect that not to, not to change. We're, we're vaccinating in a very narrow framework, and so when you vaccinate just the spike, you're gonna get variants because we are doing a very uh, specific treatment. What you're seeing now in the Delta variant is you're seeing the same thing, just a small change will allow the virus to mutate and get around that. And you're gonna see this happen over and over again. Dr. Malone, kind of building off of that, I think it would be fair to say um, we're seeing all these variants. And I think the question people often ask is why? This is really controversial. There's a lot of discussion that it's, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And the unvaccinated are the ones that are driving these escape mutants. That from a, from a, uh, fundamental evolutionary standpoint as a molecular virologist. This doesn't make sense. This virus now is known to mutate, throw off mutants, at a much higher rate than we expected it to be. So there are very many mutants. There, the virus is evolving very rapidly. This is akin to what happens if you overuse antibiotics. So in sum, what we're doing with universal vaccination is driving towards this endpoint of vaccine-resistant mutants. We don't have to. So it would sound like also the idea almost we're on the defensive. We're trying to defensively vaccinate our way out of something that we're already deeply in. Here's my optimistic view on Delta. Yes, Delta's new variant is shaped differently. Technically, it has escaped the antibodies from the vaccine. So we give a shot give another shot and say we're going to give a booster with the same shot for a virus that existed five variants ago. It's like saying to healthcare workers, we're going to give you a flu shot for the upcoming flu season, but we have leftover flu vaccines from four or five years ago in the freezer. 
illogical, no common sense in that whatsoever. So the variant has escaped it. And if you use a vaccine-only approach, you select for these variants. My optimistic point is Delta is a wildfire. A lot of people are going to get it. If you look at countries that handled it right, the death rates from Delta in many and most countries were far lower from this variant than other variants. So I want to give that optimistic message. Does it mean people aren't going to sit, get sick, not be hospitalized, not going to die? No, it doesn't mean that. But what we do need to look at, and I know Dr. Corey will address this, is early treatments. Because if you've been vaccinated, I think scientifically we need to be 100% honest with everybody and say, even if you're vaccinated or you're not, we can equal opportunity get the virus now. Vaccinated or not, and the vaccinated can carry equal or higher viral loads. It's not proof of anything, but the New England Patriots coach, Bill Belichick, made the point when asked about whether he should be, you know, using vax status for players said to be honest i look at my team my coaches my players and it's like half and half some are vaccinated some aren't they're still getting COVID. that may be a not a 50 50 real number but we're seeing massive amounts of breakthrough right what does that say to people dr corey this path that we're on which is this sort of sort of monolithic uh vaccine only strategy you know we're explaining the science why that can't be the only solution we cannot vaccinate ourselves out of this problem the positive that I want to say is that there, we know of strategies. They're actually largely being ignored and suppressed, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial about this, but the reason why is because there's still a firm held, firmly held belief that the vaccines will solve this. The evidence that you just uh, articulated is that it's becoming increasingly clear that that's not true. And so my hopes are that more and more attention is going to be paid to the other strategies which have so far been ignored, which is that of early treatment, especially now that the vaccinated are getting sick. Many of uh, the vaccinated, many people were led to believe that if you get your vaccine, we're gonna end this thing. You don't have to worry about it. You can carry on with your lives. But guess what? We're talking about variants here. We're actually, my, my colleagues are now talking about even scarier variants that are coming. And so, we need more tools uh, to fight this. We need, we need more weapons to fight this. And guess what? The positive message is we have them. And I'll tell you, the strategies that we have are independent of the variants. They can handle any variant that comes at us. We just need to get that message out. None of you are against vaccinations in general, meaning the idea of vaccinating. You probably all have vaccinations. Your kids have vaccinations. Your family, right? Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. I've had all my childhood vaccines, as have my children. I've had plenty of military vaccines back in the day. I'm not anti-vaccine, never have been, but I am pro-good science. And right now, there's science that's very questionable with something that's very quick, and we're seeing things that we've never seen before. So I'm hesitant in this regard. Dr. Mona, you've said to me before, you're not against a vaccine for COVID. I think that the vaccines need to be used intelligently. That's my objection. And as, as Dr. Cole is, has mentioned, um, uh, this set of vaccines that we have right now, Moderna, Pfizer, and J&J, those are all gene therapy-based vaccines, and they all have a common problem. They only have one antigen. It's the spike antigen. And when they were developing them, they didn't realize that Spike was biologically active. No fault of theirs. Everybody was in a rush. It was the fog of war. And they made decisions on the fly. But now it's time to take a breath and say, hey, does this really make sense? And where does it make sense? We don't have to be just left or right, pro or anti-vaccine. It's a middle ground. And, and I'm suggesting, and I think we all are aligned, that 
what we're talking about is intelligent deployment, strategic and tactical deployment of vaccines. We, as a community, need to protect these people at high risk, not just here in our community, in our states, in my opinion, we need to protect the elders throughout the world. We don't need to hoard all the vaccine for people that don't really need it. We need to make it available across the world for all cultures, for those people that are at very high risk. Dr. McDonald, um, you've talked a lot about fear and about how you feel the pandemic has created a, almost an incurable fear. I think fear has really been the driving force of this pandemic from the very beginning. Uh, I said as early as May of 2020 that we're not in a medical pandemic, we're in a fear pandemic. I think that it has evolved, however, a bit beyond fear. I think that what's driving the fear now is propaganda. Your point is, it's really messed kids up. And that struck me the first time I heard you say that, that, that kids, unlike adults, don't just bounce back. That's your point. Kids, and you said you think an entire generation of kids has been uh, screwed by this, that they will not get their psychological health back, which is really depressing if that's true. I work with children. I see kids all day long. I'm a child psychiatrist. This is happening all the time, every day in my practice. My concern is that the developmental stage that children need to go through, babies, toddlers, young adults, is being foreclosed on them. Brown University Department of Pediatrics published a study two weeks ago that found that babies born after January 1st of 2020, which is when this whole pandemic started, have a IQ point drop of 20 points. 2-0, 20 points compared to babies born before January 1 of 2020. That's huge. Why? They don't see faces, they don't play, they don't have exposure to friends, they don't go to school. They're basically locked in their homes, looking at their parents for a year and a half, and their brains have not developed. My concern is that we are building a generation of young people who are so traumatized that they will never fully recover from this. And even if we give them therapy and treatment, they're always going to be damaged. They're always going to be scarred emotionally. I don't mean for it to be depressing. I mean for it to be alarming so that everyone can finally say, stop. We've got to stop the damage and then figure out what to do about it. And what does stop the damage to you guys mean? What does that mean? Does that mean don't tell your kids I'm not sending you to school if you're having to wear a mask? Or what, what does that actually mean? I'll speak to that. I think stop the damage means to acknowledge what we have done wrong. I think that we should reverse all of the measures that have been implemented. I feel like patients, families, parents should take it upon themselves to feel empowered. We need to get back to the basics because we've done this wrong for so long. It's been so damaging. One of the books that I had in medical school and that we all had in medical school was Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine. This is basic medicine. This is what we have forgotten. Many specific host factors, that's us, influence the likelihood of acquiring an infectious disease, age, immunization history, prior illnesses, level of nutrition, pregnancy status, coexisting illnesses, and perhaps emotional state all have some impact on the risk of infection after exposure to a potential pathogen. All we have done is focused on one of those, immunization history. And so the, uh, the factors, level of nutrition, emotional state, as we have discussed, cannot be underestimated. 
the ability to provide early effective treatment should make us feel empowered. We should not feel afraid anymore. Are kids actually more, more at risk? The numbers don't seem to suggest, I mean, the number of deaths of kids from COVID was lower than the number of deaths from the flu, but now people are saying Delta's more severe. So are kids at risk? I'll just give a few statistics. There are about 330 children that have died of COVID in a year and a half. There's typically about 50,000 children per year who die. Many more have died of drownings. They have died of uh, car accidents. So if we look at the relative risks amongst different things, COVID has killed, under 19, about 330 children in the last year and a half. So I think you need to look at that as you look forward to the risk to children. Do they spread? No, children don't spread. There's at least seven different studies that show that essentially children spread to adults is close to zero, near zero, zero to one percent. So children are not super spreaders. Children don't die from disease. I own three uh, urgent cares in the Imperial Valley area, which is one of the hotbeds uh, for COVID-19 because Mexicali sits right across from us. And that's two and a half million people. Um, so we see about uh, 200 to 300 patients a day. Um, that's why my numbers have been so high. Um, I don't do telemedicine. We do uh, straight face-to-face -face encounters. I have a big giant tent in my parking lot and we run through and we see everybody who's been sick. So one of the things that I wanted to differentiate was the, are these infections truly COVID because they have the cough, cold, and rhinitis and sore throat? Or are there other viruses going on? So I decided to buy a $100,000 PCR machine, and we've been running these PCR tests. And recently, I can tell you, we've seen 90% of rhinovirus and also RSV in the kids. So RSV typically is a winter illness. Um, it causes pulmonary symptoms. It causes a pulmonary bronchiolitis not bronchitis, but bronchiolitis, the lower, lower airways. And that's why the kids are having a trouble right now is not, in my opinion, from COVID, but from RSV. Clearly, kids are being hospitalized. I know the CDC recently said it's actually not a higher proportion than it was under, under COVID. It's that's the same correct. proportion. But, and I'm not saying it's a high number, but kids are getting sick. You're correct to say kids are getting sick. And, and under that CDC data that uh, Dr. Urso was talking about, not one healthy child died from COVID-19. And that's correct as well. Okay. So it was those children who had four or five risk factors. Okay. Morbid obesity being number one, diabetes being number two, right. and weakened immune system being number three, kids on chemotherapy and things like that. So, yeah, they're going to have opportunistic affections that are also going to take them out. But that's no different than RSV, rhinovirus, influenza, uh, that would normally take out these kids anyway, unfortunately. Um, but yes, we are seeing a higher number of COVID uh, cases in the morbid obese, and the severity of illness in the morbid obese in kids is problematic. Do healthy people die of COVID? I mean, I, or, or really all, is it comorbidities? Is it obese people? Is it people with, you know, immunocompromised. The single greatest predictor for dying from COVID is age. With every decade of life, your risk goes up, and it's a straight line. Then you have to worry about comorbidities, right? So the, the diseases that they have make them more prone, like uh, obesity and diabetes. However, 
We are seeing younger people now coming into ICUs. We are seeing relatively healthy people die. We're now seeing people with less comorbidities than before. In the first wave last spring, almost everybody was either obese or diabetic. Now we're seeing much less of that. You know, so when my colleagues said not one healthy kid died of COVID, I would also like to say, I don't believe that there's anybody who's died who's gotten effective early treatment. People don't die of the virus. They die of inflammation and they die of thrombosis. Do we have drugs for inflammation that are not off-label? Steroids, colchicine. There's a bunch of drugs that are on-label that can be used for the purpose of inflammation in this disease. These are not controversial topics. There is many, many different products we can use. Lovenox, aspirin, Eliquis, Sorelto. There's a bunch of drugs for thrombosis. So when people say they died of COVID, they died of an inflammatory thrombotic disease. They didn't die from the virus running through their body. Hopefully at some point we'll have a really good early, early treatment that's directed to the virus itself. Right now we have other treatments, as Dr. Corey said, they're not, they weren't originally designed for this virus, but they are very effective against this virus. What we're seeing now is that patients are getting early treatment with medications such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and a host of other medications because of this free exchange of ideas in this group of physicians and others around the world. One thing I think we've all seen is the ivermectin's a great example where the media has politicized the issue, right? So depending on your politics, you're gonna see one of two different things. And you're gonna hear, oh, well, it's horse medicine. People are taking horse medicine. I'm sure there are people, I grew up in a rural community, I'm sure there are people who went out and were like, I'm getting some of that stuff and I'm taking it. But ivermectin is used, it's an FDA approved drug for human treatment. It's how the system is designed, which is largely against the use of repurposed drugs. If you know what a, a repurposed drug is, it's generally a drug that's off patent, not profitable, it's been uh, approved for use in another disease, for which it's found to be effective against another disease. And when you try to bring it out of its original disease, so ivermectin is well known as an anti-parasite. In fact, the discoverers won the Nobel Prize because it eradicated two globally endemic parasitic diseases. I mean, it transformed the health status of good portions of the world. We knew on the ground that corticosteroids were, were gonna work. We knew it because of our experience treating severe lung disease. We started using it, and guess what we started to see? As we started to use steroids, people started to come off ventilators. We started to divert patients away from ventilators. People who were needing oxygen were coming off oxygen getting discharged. The entire landscape changed. And I went in the Senate, the US Senate, and I testified to the world that it was critical we use corticosteroids in the hospitalized patient. And I did that at a time where every national, international healthcare agency was recommending against its use because they thought it would increase mortality. And I got heavily criticized for that. It's now the standard of care worldwide. Everything else that we've discovered, everything that's in our protocols is because we have used good, good clinical sense, lots of experience, and we've used trial and error using our best judgments of risks and benefits. We don't want to cause harm, but undertreatment and non-treatment is harm. I think this is a pandemic of undertreatment. Long-haul COVID is only caused by one thing, undertreatment. Hospitalized COVID is only caused by one thing, undertreatment. Getting COVID, I'm even going to push the envelope here, getting COVID is only caused by one thing, which is a lack of an effective preventative strategy. I thought, we, everyone thought, was hoping it was going to be the vaccine, it's not. You're saying getting COVID, getting COVID itself could be 
is completely, I'm going to push it back in a little, completely preventable? There's a number of agents who have been shown if you take them regularly, your chances of getting COVID are far lower. For me, the most effective is ivermectin. There are dozens of trials. We're now up to 14 trials, thousands of patients. The trials in which you take it the most frequently, you're nearly perfectly protected from getting COVID. It is a highly effective agent. The reason why ivermectin is so important in this disease is that it has numerous mechanisms of action. The most important mechanism is that we know it binds tightly to the spike protein. The spike protein on this virus is how it gets into our cell, how it's allowed to replicate. If you can bind it, you can block it, and you can prevent yourself from getting sick. The one caveat, though, is what we've learned is that in the Delta variant, just like the vaccines, we started seeing breakthroughs. So we have to change our dosing strategy. Out of all of the trials done on ivermectin, the strongest evidence is actually in prevention. It is a wickedly effective, highly potent preventative agent. You, if you take it regularly, your chances of getting sick are near nil. Matthew, you've done a lot of statistical research, particularly around the success of early treatments, and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Why don't you take a second and talk about your findings? So early on, I was a little frustrated not seeing much analysis. And so I started to reach out to doctors that I knew and said, uh, you know, what do you see? And uh, numerous doctors told me I'm using this and it looks good. And there wasn't much data out, so I kept reaching out to more and more doctors around the world, eventually collected about uh, 20,000 data points. And this is, this is almost a year and a half ago. And it looked like uh, those who were using hydroxychloroquine, and especially if they, if they included azithromycin and zinc, or, or you know, possibly another uh, macrolide other than azithromycin, but uh, with the zinc in particular, uh, it went down. It looked like, relative to everybody else in their communities, about 98% lower mortality. And this was across like seven different nations I got this data from. So put all this together, it was tens of thousands of data points by the end of last year. Um, but it, it, it's difficult to, to, get, uh, to get a lot of this data published because you know, I, I'm working on Dr. Tyson's data right now and, and we've, been, you know, we've had the results for months, but it's, it's difficult to get it published. Difficult to get it published, why? Because journals don't want to publish it? There is some of that. Um, anything that goes against the narrative takes longer in peer review. Is that, a, is that a valid thing that it would take longer? I mean, is that understandable or is that politics? Uh, I, I think there's some politics involved. And Dr. Tyson, you've said you have how many deaths out of the 6,000 people you've treated? So st still with treatment started from day one to seven, zero. Zero deaths. Right. From treatment started from day seven to 14, I have four. Two died the same day they showed up at the clinic and two died in the hospital. And I wanted to say my numbers exactly match up with Brian's. I've treated about 1,500 and I had one death and it was because the, there was some delay in treatment. I know that several physicians who have treated didn't have any deaths until approximately July, August, and that mm. was with the change in the virus. Within a week or two, all of us were saying the exact same thing. Something has changed. What do we need to do to change the protocol? And That's Dr. Guess, so you're treating vaccinated and unvaccinated Absolutely, patients. vaccinated and unvaccinated. And so I would say in July, the majority of my sicker patients were unvaccinated. And then I noticed in August, it seemed to be about 50-50. And now I'm noticing it's more vaccinated. And so it happened a very quick change in my practice. Dr. Tyson, Dr. Gessling, and myself are family physicians, okay? So we're the folks who have been in those front lines getting the phone calls in the middle of the night from concerned parents. And what you've just heard from Dr. Corey is that if you take the right preventive 
plan of medications, either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or both. And what you've heard also from us is if you get the right treatment with the same medications and more, you're approaching 0% mortality. I hear your passion and understandably, you guys are out there in the trenches. It's bizarre that we are, not, we are facing a pandemic that has left us where we are clearly divided about the simplest thing. Treatments are treatments. They're not all gonna work. Some are gonna fail. You're gonna experiment. But in most diseases, right, doctors get in there and you figure it out. And in this one, for some reason, we got blocked into this thing where it's like, no, no, no. And I think you have an opinion on partly why. Well, you have to ask yourself why, if we have a solution, we have effective treatments, why aren't they being recognized and disseminated across the world? And there's really two forces that I think we're up against. The first force is that, in general, our health agencies are suffering what's called regulatory capture. They're largely driven by financial interests, external financial interests, that are really influenced in making sure that the solution to the pandemic is one that is profitable. Vaccines are profitable. The other challenge that we're having, which is somewhat overlapping, is that in academia, what we call the ivory towers, the big academic institutions, in the last 10 years, there's been this sort of increasing belief into the idea that the only proof of efficacy of a drug has to come out of a large, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. When you do a randomized controlled trial, you have to first make the diagnosis. Everyone has to have a positive test. They have to have symptoms. They have to be enrolled, consented, randomized, and then the drug is delivered. Each one of those steps takes time. And so by the time they do these randomized controlled trials, oftentimes it's very delayed, and oftentimes it's underdosed because they're using doses that I was using six months ago. We move with this pandemic because we can't prove it with the one tool that we, that we need to prove it we are getting suppressed and that message is getting suppressed. Who funds big randomized control trials? Uh, that would be pharma generally. Uh, there, now there is philanthropy and there is the NIH. But they tend to be big. But however, the NIH and pharma are quite tightly linked. Let's just take a minute and address some of the vaccine related questions that I think people have. And I wanna start with you, Dr. Malone, if that's okay, because you are the, one of the architects of mRNA technology. And if I were to ask you, Dr. Malone, are you against the vaccine for COVID? I know your answer would be absolutely not, but you do have some issues with this particular vaccine. Why? So um, thanks for that opportunity to make the point that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a guy who spent the majority of my adult life developing vaccines and trying to get vaccines licensed. For example, the Ebola vaccine that we call the Merck vaccine. This, this is a technology platform that I believe and many believe has enormous promise. And right now it's in its infancy. The safety of the underlying technology is not yet fully demonstrated. It hasn't been fully characterized and that will come, that's good news. However, in in the fog of war and the need to come up with something as soon as possible, some decisions were made to move things forward very rapidly. They were based on incomplete information. No harm, no foul. People did what they did in good faith and focused on a protein that they thought was fully safe. 
spike. But now, over a year later, we know that in the virus, this protein is responsible for much of the disease that the virus causes, the pathology in your vascular endothelial cells, the coagulation. And it's unfortunate that this particular protein in, its, in what appears to be a biologically active form was used in these vaccines. What is the result of that? What does that mean is happening? This is a thromboembolic disease. What does that mean? COVID is a clotting disease. COVID is a clotting disease. COVID is a clotting disease. Now, when we give a spike protein, to Dr. Malone's point, that is an active biologic um, molecule, we chose the wrong molecule that causes disease. So what do I see under the microscope? You see these COVID skin cases, you know, these weird COVID rashes. What is that? That's clotting in the skin. When I get the autopsy tissues now from my colleagues around the country, these patients that, you know, we have unfortunately doctors that say there's no damage from the vaccines and no deaths from the vaccines. We should use the French legal system. When we have a new product that's never been used on humanity in the market, it's guilty until proven innocent. Every time there is damage or disease from that product, we need to assume it is until we prove it isn't. So under the microscope, we see clotting in the lungs, we see clotting in the vessels, we see clotting in the brain, not from the virus, but from the spike from the vaccine itself. Now consider the numerator and the denominator. Are most people going to be fine? Yes, and I want to emphasize that. In our data around the world, from the United States, from the UK, from the Eurovigilance in uh, Europe, we have seen more death and damage from this one medical product than all other vaccines combined in the last several decades in just a short eight-month window of time. It has done more damage than any other medical product, therapy, shot, uh, modality of anything we've ever allowed to stay on the market to this point. Wow. Do I mean to sound alarmist? No, I'm being factual. And when I look at it under the microscope and I see the parts of people or people that are no longer with us, the damage and the disease is caused by that spike protein. It is present. Common sense would tell me you can't tell me you know a vaccine's efficacy is debatable, but you're figuring it out, but you know it's safe. If you couldn't possibly know it's safe because you would need five, 10 years to really know it's safe, just common sense. I love your approach of, of let's just think for a minute. Let's just apply common sense. It normally takes a decade or more to produce a vaccine that is safe and effective and to demonstrate that it's safe. The usual standard with the FDA is that you allow at least two years after you have administered the phase three material to at least 3,000 people for a vaccine. Often the FDA wants many more people than that. And you follow them for two years at least to see whether or not they're generating autoimmune problems, et cetera. And you're dead on. I mean, any of you can do the math, okay? Have shortcuts been taken? Normally, it takes three years to evaluate the data. This was deployed in, in you know, eight months, six months or less after the phase three trials were completed. So it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the common sense that we don't have the information. In terms of safety in pregnancy, reproductive toxicology, reproductive risks, potential birth defects, 
the honest truth is, whatever they tell you, we don't have the data. So the, whomever is speaking, if they're telling you that it's safe, but they haven't actually done the studies, I think you can figure out that that means that they're not being, let's see, gently truthful with you. Were women um, even included, were pregnant women even included in the clinical trials? Of course they weren't. The NIH just funded the study like a week ago on reproductive toxicology and birth defects in children. The study, the major study on potential risks in pregnancy wasn't started until after, about almost a month after, the CDC said it's okay to go ahead and start taking the vaccine. For people who don't know, a good, a good percentage of the, of the COVID, um, of the vaccine, the spike protein, I'm sorry, the lipid nanoparticles, actually goes to the ovaries. They knew this before they started, that this is what happened. So I do think, while there might not have been intent, anybody who did that kind of work would know that they would actually go to those places. That's what they do. They, they go through those very easily. And of course, they're carrying spike protein. Spike protein, we know, is going to cause inflammation in the ovaries. What do we know about that? Well, as Dr. Malone said, we don't know what that means. Is that going to affect fertility? We don't know. We got to hope and pray that it doesn't because many people have taken that and they now have significant inflammation that has gone to those organs. And so the other, the other place is the pregnant women. We literally have pregnant women coming in. She had two miscarriages. She was in her 10th week and her OB actually told her to go get the, um, the, the vaccine. And he cannot know that that's safe, it's impossible. So she didn't have miscarriages from the vaccine, she just happened to have miscarriages. She's at high risk for another miscarriage. It's a high risk pregnancy. There's no reason to introduce any new therapeutic of any sort in this patient. So this is what we're seeing, a one size fits all policy that makes no sense and we need to stop it and we need to adopt early treatment and other measures. What if you're COVID recovered? You may be vaccinated or unvaccinated and COVID recovered, but it's a whole unique group that you actually would argue has actually more immunity and is more valuable than all the others together. 100% true. If you've had COVID, you're done with COVID. We don't need to modify mother nature. And if you think of what a vaccine is, a vaccine mimics a small portion of a natural infection. So to say a natural infection is not equal to a vaccination is insanity. In vaccinology, we're trying to mimic a part of nature, whereas Mother Nature does it right. And a high, 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 high percentage, you know, Dr. Mokola would say, you know, one in a hundred million, maybe one in a million, if you have a weakened immune system, if you'd have and have had COVID, may get it again. But you're gonna get it in a much more mild manner. So this two-tier, polarization of our society, you know, a virus isn't politically red or blue or purple. A virus is a humanitarian issue. And when we divide ourselves in thought and don't listen to science anymore, we're going down the wrong paths. When we look at what's happened to the children, going back to the children point, half of kids in the U.S. have already had COVID. We're not antibody testing. We're treating everybody with this terrible oppression of you've got to wear a mask. It doesn't matter that you had COVID. You know, you've got to stay home if somebody in your classroom tests positive. It denies basic science. And this isn't upper level immunology. This is basic immunology 101. And we are forgetting what our amazing immune system does. How many of you had chicken pox when you were a kid? Probably a lot. Okay. 
How many of you ever gotten them again? Yeah, no. <laughs> Did you need a shot? No. How many of you, you know, grandma had measles. Has ever, grandma ever gotten measles again? No, because her immune system works. This gets back to common sense. Why are they telling us that natural infection isn't protective? Why are they telling us that those who have recovered still got to get the jab? Okay? There is a financial incentive here. And if there are a few examples that make it so abundantly clear. One is this crazy labeling of ivermectin as a horse paste drug. Hey, I give ivermectin to my horses, but I don't take the horse version for myself, you know? Um, and, and the other is this crazy messaging about natural infection. Why are they saying these things that make no sense? Under age 50, with no comorbidities, your chance of dying from this disease are about nil, and if you get early treatment, they're even closer to nil. So if you were COVID recovered, which half of the young people in North America are, and probably here as well, you don't need a shot. And the shot can damage the heart of children. There are more children who've had myocarditis, and there's never such a thing as mild myocarditis. That's inflammation of the heart. Once you get inflammation, you get scarring. Those kids' hearts are damaged for life. There are more kids that have had heart attacks, you know, like five, no, five, 10, 15 kids now that have died of heart attacks after the shots. 400 plus kids that have had myocarditis that have damaged hearts for life. That's more than the kids that have died from COVID. Now the ratio to damaged children is much higher than to do benefit. And children survive this virus at a statistical 100%, age zero to 18, 99.997% of children survive this virus. So why are we punishing kids for a virus they survive? It's illogical. There's lots of people out there who got the vaccine and are wondering, how risky is it? Here's what I do know about multiple boosters. The immune system is really, really complex. And it's as complex as the nervous system, which, by the way, comes from the same cell type. Incredibly complex. And one thing, as somebody that's been in this business and had all this stupid training for 30 years, more is not better. The assumption that another dose is going to boost your immunity um, to levels that it was previously needs to be demonstrated clearly, and the safety of that needs to be demonstrated. Because as immunologists, we know darn well there's a thing called high zone tolerance. More is not better. More can actually suppress the immune response. After the extra shots, we're seeing the depletion of certain cell types, to your point, we're starting to document it and studying it. And to his question, why give a third shot to a virus that was gone in January and February of this year? We're on to Delta. The booster is not something new. It's the same shot for the virus that's gone. Delta's a new virus, essentially. So is there any logic to boost something that's not even here anymore? No. So people are, we're vaccinating. By giving that booster shot, we're vaccinating for COVID and we're already on the Delta D6, and move. 14G strain that you know, we made the sequence for the spike against isn't even circulating anymore. It's not even here. We're you know, one, two, three, four, five variants on from that. Delta is behaving as a new virus. The antibodies don't neutralize it anymore, especially the N-terminal domain of the spike. It's a wrong approach at this point. It is the wrong protein now. It's not even a virus that's here. Okay, let me get, we got some great people out here who want to participate. I am as skeptical of big pharma as anybody else is, more than most. But I've heard uh, lots of speculation and lots of, in some cases, outright assertion that there's an evil profit motive at work here that is 
preventing a lot of good things from happening. That may well be true, but that goes both ways. And I'm not accusing you of this. I never would. But you guys make a living by treating patients. And if the vaccines are effective and you don't have patients to treat, you lose, right? Everyone in my practice wishes and prays every day that COVID goes away. We don't want to treat another patient with COVID ever, ever again. To be honest with you, my other patients have been neglected because of COVID. I, this is, it's, it's impossible for us to keep up with this space. We don't have to know what pharmacies' motives are. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not interested. What I'm interested in is a comprehensive plan. I'm interested in contagion control. I'm interested in vaccination. I'm interested in prophylaxis. I'm interested in early treatment. The motivation side doesn't matter. It's the data that matters and a comprehensive plan that matters. So we don't have to fight and say they're bad, we're good. It doesn't matter. It's a comprehensive plan that we need to emphasize that encompasses everything, including vaccination, including prophylaxis, including early treatment, all these things, nutrition, all these things need to be emphasized. So that the fact of the matter is what really matters is we need to do everything all at the same time because that's how we do it. That's how we've always done it. We've never done it different. It was a shock to us to find it different that people are not emphasizing early treatment. That is just something that is incomprehensible and we still don't know the answer and we don't care. I don't care. We're just gonna go forward and we're gonna treat. We're gonna recommend vaccination and when it's smart, we're gonna do prophylaxis, we're gonna do nutrition, we're gonna do late treatment, we're gonna do all of that because that's smart. And I want to ask if you think after maybe May after 2020, there, there were an emergency, if there is an emergency now. So I'm an intensive care unit physician. Um, I take care of the patients who come at the end of the line, and I will tell you, we still are having an emergency. This is an emergent situation. If you look at the United States, there are dozens of cities and areas where the hospitals are filling, the ICUs are filling. This is a, what it is an emergency of, it's an emergency of under-treatment. There's under-treatment early, there's under-treatment late. In the hospital, using low doses of corticosteroids, when we have immense amounts of data showing higher doses are life-saving combinations of therapies are life-saving. We know how to get these patients better, but we have to be more aggressive at every phase. Everyone is being restricted to following the protocols that come from the top. They're not working, they're failing, and that's the emergency. I think there is a perception, because it's been very politicized, this whole COVID thing's just been exaggerated. Your issues were not treating it, not that it's not a real deadly disease, is that fair? Yeah, I, I've, I have to tell you, my perspective is quite different. I've never, ever walked into an ICU that's full of every patient on a ventilator with the same disease. I've never seen 24 patients on a ventilator with the flu at any one time. I've never seen dermatologists uh, taking care of patients on ventilators in regular hospital floors. It is getting better. We're not in that catastrophic phase. But this is the most complex and most violent disease that I have seen and the most difficult to treat in the ICU. The trick is avoid getting the ICU. Is there any realistic scenario under which everyone gets vaccinated and COVID actually goes away? Because I find that this is still the assumption in the mainstream narrative. As a frontline doctor, and I'll tell you what I see in my practice, the answer is no, because half of my patients have been vaccinated fully. The other half have not. And even under the sense that everybody's going to be vaccinated, you still have patients fully vaccinated with severe disease. So I, I don't see that. 
Can we vax our way out of this? Is that possible? Now, in order to, you can run the numbers, in order to get to herd immunity, you have to have a vaccine that's generally more than 80% effective in preventing infection, not preventing disease, okay, to block the spread. In the CDC slide deck that they leaked to the, was leaked to the Washington Post, they showed clearly, even with Delta, let alone Lambda and Mu, we cannot stop the spread of Delta. If we were to vaccinate with these leaky vaccines, which efficacy in terms of prevention of infection is something between 40 and 60% we can arm wrestle, okay? You could vaccinate the whole world with that and you still won't stop the spread. What you will do is select for even more potent escape mutants, okay? That are gonna blow through those vaccines and who's gonna die? The people that we wanted to protect in the first place the elderly, the morbidly obese, the immunocompromised. Those are the ones that are gonna suffer from this inappropriate universal vaccination strategy. The thing that worries me the most in what I've been hearing from frontline physicians here in this meeting is they're experiencing that the Delta variant seems to be worse. It seems to be more pathogenic. No, we can't stop it. Can we make it worse? <laughs> yeah, we can. I'm going to put it in layman's terms. You can't play whack-a-mole with a vaccine with the variant because by the time you get vaccinated against the next variant, the new one's here and then the new one's here, and you're not going to roll out a new one every time. So to that point, you have to focus on treating early. Um, thank you all for being here. By the way, just want to say, I've heard a number of these guys say, we'll take on anyone. And while we didn't do a head-to-head, -head, I think this is a great way to have a conversation about this perspective that often gets repressed. And you get to see it's much more nuanced. It's not as black and white or as simplistic as it seems. We need more than anything in this country right now, in this world right now, to start having conversations we're not having. And be willing to have them, have the guts to have them, to hear what we're not comfortable with. So thank you all for being part of Roundtable's first Roundtable.